I think everyone is holding some kind of mental health freak out. All of us were losing workers. The pandemic created a lot of walking wounded. And in fact, I feel like the mental health issues are way worse. We're just starting to see vulnerabilities, but it feels like a collective, like, hands up in the air, like, I give up. <laughs> I'm still doing this work. My mind's a little bit shut off. I'm kind of adroitly getting through it, but I'm not healthy. Don't you kind of feel like if there was actually another wave of something that happened, like, right now? We'd be I decimated. Mean, People will say to me, 2021 was more stressful than 2020, because 2020, it was like, you had to make live or die kind of decisions. I have since lost both parents a while back, but to, helped with my siblings to take care of both parents. So fully understand the stresses. I'm determined to experience what it means to be completely whole by myself. Greater Good Radio. Connect, learn, heal, and grow is brought to you by Brain Gain Hawaii, a boutique executive recruiting, career development, and coaching firm. Learn more at BrainGainHI.com. Today's guest is Lisa Mariyama, the president and CEO of Hano. So welcome to the show, Lisa. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so... Happy to be here. Can you just explain what Hano is and mm -hmm. maybe your background a little bit? So Hano stands for the Hawaii Alliance of Nonprofit Organizations. It's a, lot, it's a mouthful. So it's been lately branded as Hano. It's easier. And Hano's been around since 2006 and really with the recognition that there needed to be an organization that was looking out solely for the charitable, particularly the charitable nonprofit sector statewide. So the only organization in existence at the moment in Hawaii that is, again, looking at statewide issues, nonprofit sector issues, thinking about supporting organizations that are community-based, that are actually trying to solve for community issues. So the mission, you know, technically is to strengthen and unite the nonprofit sector as a collective force to improve the quality of life in Hawaii. So it's not about, very different from a trade association in that oftentimes those associations are trying to perpetuate the existence of those organizations, those member organizations. The mission of Hano is to actually improve the quality of life in Hawaii via its partners, community-based organizations doing that good work. So it does things like what a trade association might do, provide professional development, opportunities to network, convene, opportunities to leverage resources. We also do advocacy at the federal, state, and county levels around nonprofit issues. But something to clarify is, you know, we're not necessarily deeply advocating like for the Red Hill water issues or plastic bag ish, plastic bag ban, those types of things, or affordable housing. We're leaving that work to advocates that are closer to the ground that are actually really, their missions are to live, breathe, and think those issues, right? Solve for those problems. Where we stay at the sector level where we're thinking about taxes, tax exemptions, regulatory issues, governance, any policies that help or hinder the ability of the nonprofit to actually thrive in, in doing and in meeting its mission. And it's mission agnostic, right? So this work is regardless of your mission, we're actually enhancing the operating environment of that organization. So it's been sometimes confusing as to what our role is when we move in those political, those policy spaces. 
but that's an easy way to distinguish. You know, if we're, we're sort of the operational watchdog, if you will, and we enhance or uplift the work of those that are doing the advocacy work closer to the ground around the issues-based work. You've been there for like 13 years? No, oh. September will be 15 years. Oh, 15 years. Wow. And then how did you end up in this role, like in this field in general? I've been pretty much all my career in the nonprofit sector, except for a couple years here and there doing other things. But I would say I've been the thread that sort of weaves everything together in my career, in my zigzag of a career, is government relations work that I started doing straight out of college. And you know, when you get that on your resume, somehow it always calls out to the next person that that's a skill. And I just developed that skill through the years. So I was executive director for a couple different organizations, took different missions over my career, and then took a brief stint in the for-profit sector doing public relations, and then came back, did a little bit of consulting, came back to Hano with kind of an, a combination of those skill sets of sort of having been in the trenches as an executive director in small nonprofits, having garnered some skills in communications, strategic communications and PR, then a lot of the government relations work, right? And it all kind of culminating at Hano where those were the different skill sets actually needed to do the work there. And so I've really enjoyed it. It hasn't felt like 15 years and yet in some ways it has. <laughs> I have the bags to show for it. Yeah. So it's been good work and it's been really inspiring and exciting to actually get to know so many folks doing good community work across the different missions of the constituency of Hano, like the Aina-based guys and the people that are really thinking hard around education reform and people who are doing arts and culture work and those doing health and human service, social safety network, right? And really thinking are also just those outliner groups like the good government folks and the think tanks and the, you know, all of those guys that sort of fall fall in there. Animal, right? Animal rights. So it's a really diverse constituency. So it's been super, super interesting to get to know those organizations and the work that they're doing statewide. What would be your favorite story about that, your entire kind of career that you would take with you if you could only have one? I was invited to a luncheon for the Mental Health America annual meeting. And so I was at the table of the parents and children together staff and was just sort of taking in their conversations with each other, realizing that they are meeting each other for the first time, some of these workers at parents and children together. And so they were sitting there kind of familiarizing each other with each of their roles. So I kind of butted in and asked, you know, like, they, they even asked if I worked at Parents and Children Together. And I kind of giggled and said, no, I, I'm actually a guest of your CEO. And kind of like, why don't you know that I don't work at Parents and Children Together? And they were like, well, there's like 500 plus of us, you know, working statewide. And certainly in the pandemic, well, it's hard to logistically convene the entire staff in one place at one time. And everybody's doing really deep community work. And then certainly the pandemic, you know, made it harder to convene, even in small pockets. So it just was a little astonishing to me that some of these larger social service organizations are doing this work remotely. Some are in the administrative office, some are in the field. They don't often stop to get brought together. 
And when I heard what each of them was doing, it was so inspiring. I mean, the program that they described to me that they were involved in, the kind of impact they're having on families and children was super chicken skin, right? So I realized just, wow. I guess the takeaway from that is how versatile community-based nonprofits are, how impactful they are, how huge and some of them are, and the work that they're doing across the state, and how challenging it is as teams to actually come together and learn from each other, you know, and to not have that worldview of understanding everyone on the team. So I just walked away from that luncheon, you know, thanking the CEO, Ryan Kusumoto, for having been invited, but being included at his table. Not only did I learn about the mental health, associate, which was, I was an executive director of that organization back in the day when it was called the Mental Health Association. Now it's Mental Health America. But that day I learned a lot about them as well. They had an amazing award ceremony and just awarding people doing super, super cool work in mental health, mental health awareness, mental health education. So anyway, walked away that day super inspired and feeling like, gosh, I wish everybody could live their life like this, being inspired this way by people. It was for the Mental Health America. Yeah. So what were the main takeaways you got from that meeting? There were some several awardees, and I can't remember their names, but just some of them were doing really deep work in suicide prevention, a woman and her son had opened up a cafe for transgender youth. So that was inspiring. And Is that the bubble tea one? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think so. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the names of these people or their organizations, but these are just sort of the high level takeaways that I had around the kind of work and the resilience that people have to continue to do this work in community and the brilliance of sort of recognizing when there's a puka, right, of service or need. And then doing something about it. <laughs> and I just think that's that's just super exciting. I'm just wondering what you see as the pukas or the holes that aren't being filled. I think that there are people in crisis, right? No doubt. And I think the pandemic created a lot of walking wounded. So whether it's youth or even, you know, workers in our sector that are Well, for one thing, backing up, like every other industry, we're losing workers at all levels. So everyone from sort of the entry level receptionist all the way to like, say, a medical director or a CFO or a CEO. So there's a lot of turnover in our sector. And I think there's a perfect storm brewing for us because the ones who remain are holding a lot. They're doing three jobs, right? And demand hasn't necessarily decreased post-pandemic, right? And we say this, we're not out of the pandemic because there are a lot of residual issues. Just because we don't have COVID testing stations on every corner and food security, you know, food delivery service lines happening, you know, at YPO Soccer Park, like we did in the beginning, Just because we're not kind of in that crisis or immediate rapid response mode doesn't mean that the issues related to the pandemic have gone away. And in fact, I feel like the mental health issues are way worse. And it's something... Than during the pandemic? Then I think it's a little more insidious, let's put it that way, in that 
or more hidden or more what hidden. Do you mean insidious? I think everyone is holding some kind of mental health freak out. <laughs> mm-hmm. All of us, right? At some level. And I think about those poor kids, class of 2020, right? Who didn't get their proms and didn't get their graduation. And My then, son right, is 21. 21, yeah. right. That in some ways it was even worse because yeah. the entire Lose your senior year, year and so on. was yeah. online, right? Whereas, you know, not to compare, but 2020, they had something, right? In person until that moment, right? March 2020. But then those kids had to go on to other ways of existing, right? Whether they went to college, whether they stayed at home, whether they found a job. And the mental health issues that you were seeing in those in that kind of age group is just phenomenal, right? And then these kids are expected to graduate and from college and then get on and matriculate and get a job and contribute to society. And they've had these critical moments where they were supposed to be socially developing in some certain way. They were robbed of that, right? And they're now expected to be managers or something, right? And we just see so much anxiety and stress around what it is they're supposed to do and be. And this sort of post-pandemic expectation of everyone sort of gets back to normal. What's normal anymore, right? So anyway, we're seeing a lot of that expressed in the nonprofit sector. And service delivery is hard-pressed to actually respond to those issues. And it's brought out, I think, the awareness that there are mental health issues that we all struggle with in varying degrees, right? Some have severe issues. Some are, as I call them, walking wounded, right? Holding a lot of anxiety, but just kind of getting through the day-to-day. And then I, I really am worried about our workers. There's a lot of burnout at all levels within our sector. And what I've said is it's just sometimes easier to opt out and get a job at Target where you're not having to daily address trauma and you're not then holding that trauma yourself. And, you know, you can get good benefits and you can make a living. And so a lot of people are opting out just for easier ways of working. Maybe we're losing workers to government, to the for-profit sector, for their ability to provide competitive wages, to provide robust benefits. And so what are we doing in the nonprofit sector to actually create de- decent work? Competitive pay, healthy you know, benefits and compensation, and upward mobility and professional development and wellness, right? All of that is something that I think every industry is thinking about. And we don't have the resources to necessarily be competitive around those issues. How are the companies supposed to survive doing that then? You know, especially in the nonprofit side where you don't have the resources. We're having different conversations with our funding partners, right? And by funding partners, it could be our corporate partners, our government contractors, our private philanthropic partners, our individual donors, right? To share what true cost looks like. So if we really want to have healthy community-based organizations with workers that are also healthy, um, we have to pay them fairly. We have to shore up those resources for them. And in order to do that, we can't explain away or hide away our cost. And so we have to kind of be clear-eyed in the conversation that, you know, I used to want to be competitive for this government contract, so I would come to you with the lowest bid. Well, right now, what I have to do, what we all have to do is be really honest about what the cost is. And it brings that up and the lowest bid is higher, right? And government has to figure out a way to pay for it. 
if we are a reliable partner, which we actually demonstrated in the pandemic, we didn't go away. We're very resilient. We were first responders, you know, and we have the flexibility within our operating environments to be agile, adaptive, responsive. We're good partners to government and the corporate sector, but you got to pay up. Like there has to be a way that we acknowledge that work over time. If not, these are house of cards. If we do not shore up those core activities of these nonprofits, then when the next crisis comes, these nonprofits won't be around to actually be that reliable partner. So that's the drumbeat that I and a bunch of colleagues have been sort of beating, you know, around true cost. Until we get that, it's really going to be a house of cards, I think. Don't you kind of feel like if there was actually another wave of something that happened like right now? We'd be decimated. Decimated. That's what I was thinking too. Because I think the workforce, okay, you know, have you ever done this, Evan, where you, you have like a big party? It's a big event for you personally or whatever, a wedding or whatever. And you're an adrenaline, like you're just going and you hold this event. And then as soon as you're done, you catch a cold, right? Because your body just kind of goes, okay, it's pow. I can let my defenses down. That's what happened in the nonprofit sector where probably 2021, 2022, even now people are allowed to just kind of go, oh, okay, the crisis is over and I'm going to sit down on the couch for a little while. And then now I'm being expected to get back up because like I said, there's a different flavor to the insidiousness of this crisis. It's deep-seated around, you know, we still haven't addressed poverty. We still need housing. There isn't equity around access to education, digital literacy, those types of issues, right, that were highlighted during the pandemic, but never really got solved. And so they're just still there. Yeah. But everyone's gone back to their corners, right? Philanthropy is no longer rapid response crisis funding. They've gone back to their areas of mission focus. Corporations, you know, are still very charitable. They've got employee giving programs and, you know, we're very appreciative of that partnership, but still everyone's gone back to their corners. There is still the sort of the spigot is still turned on of federal funding, right? There's still relief money coming down from the feds, but we haven't created the systems to actually distribute them out seamlessly into community. So there's large pockets of money just sort of sitting within government that could be distributed faster and more and deployed more creatively. That sounds like to me, though, is like you have all these components that are kind of back and plugged in, but they're not connected. Right. 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 I mean, you and I have had these conversations for years around the lack of connectivity, the lack of seamless resourcing, right? Leveraging of resources. So just to say that that's all part of that perfect storm, that when you're asked to get up off that couch to get back out, get back out there, plan that next event or that next service deliverable, you're just a little less resilient than you were the first time. Your adrenaline has stopped running and you're just depleted. And we don't have the resources in our sector to actually take care and address and identify when that's happening for people. And so we're just starting to see vulnerabilities. It's really hard to put my finger on it, but it feels like a collective, like, hands up in the air, like, I give up, (laughs) kind of. I'm still doing this work. My mind's a little bit shut off. I'm kind of adroitly getting through it, but I'm not, I'm not healthy. You know what that reminds me of? So, so two things that reminds me of, which is on the 
the piece of that the pandemic, the testing and stuff is over, but it's not necessarily over. It's like a second wave almost. That reminds me of like when when people are surfing really big waves. You know, they're doing tow in and they're surfing huge waves. You know, forty, fifty, sixty mm-hmm. foot waves, and they're for safety now. They have these vests that you can, if you can reach it, you pull it. You pull the cord mm. and it inflates and it pops you back up. Mm-hmm, that's so that's the first wave you get yeah. pounded on, right? The second and third are the ones that really total you because you now cannot dive under at all. You just get your... rocked, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that is why I thought, well, if it's you had another analogy. one, you would get, we would get totaled. You know, we would get blasted. But the other thing is that, you know, I'm 50. I just turned 50 last year. And a good chunk of my friends that are, in the first responders, you know, fire, police, right. and so on, they're retiring. Mm-hmm. And I remember long before, I was like, oh, why are you going to do that? You know, you could go into business or this and so on. And I was like, wow. You know, they're retiring now. They'll probably live pretty long because, you know, we tend to live longer mm-hmm. now. And I mentioned that to my friend. I said, yo, look at these guys. They're all retiring. They have, you know, their pension. They don't pay in health insurance. If they want, they could work again, but they really don't have to. And he said, yeah, but did you take into account what they had to go through? Right. Right. You know, for fire and, mm-hmm. and police and so on. Mm-hmm. Did you take into account those 25 mm-hmm. years or so those, on? And they've been in they heightened states to go to all their career, through. right? And I went, oh. So you figure it's, you know, longer years than that condensed into that period of time because it's so intense. Mm-hmm. Where I looked at, especially during this pandemic, the first responders, they don't have any break. That's healthcare and yeah. so on, right? But then what about the social first responders, like the nonprofits? Mm-hmm. Or the teachers. Mm-hmm. Teachers, yeah. Or absolutely. HR in your organization. They have had zero break. Right. And to me, when I look at that, that collective amount of stress, I think people are trying to hold it together totally. and put on the face. But because we have not, a lot of us have not figured out how to properly re-engage as a group, mm-hmm. it's super hard. Mm-hmm. Because if you couldn't figure that out before, and maybe that's not your thing, you can't. you don't know how to engage and connect with people in a social way that you can co-regulate with them and so on. Mm. Coming out of this is way harder. I would say for some of our workers, it's a luxury to even have the time to be social because a lot of them have two jobs, three jobs, Mm -hmm. right? So they're coming off very stressful work Monday through Friday. Then they're on the weekend doing Target or something else, right? Some kind of second job. Then they're showing up Monday just absolutely burnt crispy, right? Because they've not had the ability to decompress. And this has been happening since well before the pandemic, right? Because of the cost of living in Hawaii. And if you think about the most challenged worker that's getting paid minimum wage, think about the middle class, right? It's just happening at different rungs. To me, I would not do it. If I was in that situation, going through the pandemic where I get a stimulus as well, and I realized, oh, wow, if I'm not working, I'm not dying. And why am I doing all of this stuff? I'm watching people around me, you know, suffer and potentially pass away and so on. My my life is short. I need to think about this differently. I'm going to go work in the hotel. Right. Well, and also, at the beginning, it was like you didn't want to be in jobs that had you close to people, right? So people were making decisions that way. Mm. And then there was, you know, you could go back to work, you could do some kind of in-person, but there were risks there. Like when you think about teachers and the ever-changing environment of teachers, right? Like how they've had to adapt from day one. Even, you know, 
people will say to me, 2021 was more stressful than 2020 because 2020, it was like you had to make live or die kind of decisions. And everyone sort of gave you permission to do that. And in 2021, as everyone kind of went back to normal classroom or whatever that looked like, that in-between stage was kind of stressful. Like, do you have them back? How do, how do you sit them close together in the classroom? Whatever, right? And you had parents that felt the, the gamut of feelings, right? Around, I want them back or I don't want them back, et cetera. Anyway, I cannot imagine how it was for an educator, right? But it's not, super, like, it's not like hard. everybody was yeah. told, okay, we're out of the clear. Everyone go take a sabbatical for six months and rejuvenate you know, or go get your mental health checked, right? No one had that ability to do that. Pretty much everybody's been still just running. And then also there, it's not like we don't have resources. So there are these federal resources, there's money and they don't, to my frustration, pay for the right things. So what could have happened to, to answer your question about if another wave of something happened to us, whether it's a natural disaster or another pandemic, et cetera, we have not taken any of those that money flowing into Hawaii, and we have not shored up the back offices of particular community-based organizations. So if you ask me, when that spigot turns off of federal money, say in 2024, 2025, right? Because those are sort of the congressional packages, right? When that turns off, and people have asked me, oh, will nonprofits be stronger for it? I will tell you, no. They're no different because that money just flowed through them, right? And went into, certainly for good things, community, you know, health. But no one is investing in the organizations themselves. So when that money stops, we're nowhere better. We're no more resilient. We're no more shored up, I guess, in the right areas. Funders still really prefer paying for program as opposed to operations or they would prefer a tangible deliverable on the programmatic side than actually paying for internet access or wellness for workers, et cetera, that kind of thing. So we're still trying to have those conversations around what is sort of the impending doom of doing everything the same? What do organizations look like, you know, going forward? And what does the community look like if those organizations can't serve? Do you have any visibility into like the educators at all in terms of like Hano as an organization or any of the organizations that you deal with? Because I have four kids, you know, they range between 20 years old to nine. And when we look at it and say, well, where's the support in the schools for the kids? It's going to be the educators or the admin or so on. However, if those educators and admin have not had any break mm -hmm. at all during all of this, they're trying to take care of their own family, potentially caring for elderly parents mm -hmm. and others, their kids and so on. There's no capacity mm -hmm. for extra any energy other than what they have to do for their work. Absolutely. How would the kids get any support that way? And how do these teachers and admin get support that way too? So I'm curious on that if you had any I mean, visibility I, into that. I don't have any clear solutions. What I hunger for, I guess, is... Creative models around job share, around sabbaticals, around co-leadership. Like, are there ways, whether it's a classroom for teachers or it's a nonprofit workplace, what could we be doing to actually 
creatively give people the ability to step back and step in and support each other in that? And how do we just get really good at like the organization not turning sideways when someone takes a sabbatical, right? We have to want that. You know, we've been kind of playing with the concept of the four-day work week. What does that look like in the nonprofit sector? Some have actually been experimenting with it just to see how it works. And some do it like summertime only if it's there's a seasonal intensity, right, to your work. Then do it in the off season and try it. these ways in which you just give people a chance to sit and hear themselves think and relax, you know. And so I would love to see everyone embracing some of those models a little bit more. Are they working? Some will say yes. Some will say it's challenging because the workload, it's so much that you then feel a little stressed when you're taking your Friday off, right? Because you've just got so much waiting for you on Monday. (laughs) So maybe it takes a certain type of discipline. It takes a cultural shift where I'm not stressed out on Friday because Evan is not going to call me on Friday because he knows I'm taking Friday off. And so everyone in our community partners have to kind of accept that this is the case and not apply the pressure. Well, I thought you were going to deliver that grant on Friday, right? So no, you really shouldn't take Friday off. But it should be the other way around. It should be like, nope, Friday is hands off. Let's ask the funder if we can turn it in on Monday, right? You know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Like everyone has to have each other's back around reinforcing taking time off. Until that happens, though, it's hard because we're all performers, right? We all are geared and we have been geared all our lives to actually meet those deadlines, right? Be excellent. And so I think it's just going to take conversations with everyone. What are you seeing for remote work and whether people are coming back to the office or what's going on with that? It's a little bit of everything, you know, a lot of, depending on your mission, you had to be back in the office for some teams, you had to be back in the office or in the front lines or in the field from the get-go. And for others, yeah, people are still work from home. And like Hano, we're still work from home. We hold an office. We pay rent on an office that we are going back to more often. We have really found that we can be highly productive in continuing to be work from home. Yeah. So That's also another wellness approach, right? If you're in these sandwich years where you have kids that you're taking care of as well as kupuna, that's a, work from home is wonderful, right? And if you have a trusted team that you know they're going to get the job done, but they might be doing it at 10 p.m. or they might be more productive at 4 a.m., but it's just sort of supporting and acknowledging the way they're most productive. And if they're taking the mid-morning off to take their kids to the doctor or their mother to the doctor, so be it. That means you're mentally healthier because you've been able to do that for your family. And you can be more present then when you're at the desk doing the work. I firmly believe that. There's no way that you can. I don't know how we did it before when you had to clock in and clock out and you had to be sitting at your desk, but in your seat. And then you've, you're worrying that you've got to take your daughter to the doctor or whatever. But then you got to take, you know, it just, I don't know how we did all of that. Like I just, my daughter reflects that she's a pre-pandemic high schooler. And so she would wait, whether she had an activity after school or not, for me to pick her up at the end of the day, because I felt guilty leaving my job, my office, my team to go pick her up. And so she just had to suck it and she had to go sit somewhere and wait, or we had to enroll her in things. My son is a pandemic kid. He gets picked up as soon as the bell rings. 
because I'm on a Zoom call in the car. I'm able to swing by. He gets in. I drive him to his next thing. I'm still on my Zoom call. I'm able to do all of it. And no one blinks an eye that I'm in the car weighing in. And and I hear him get in the car, right? Like it's just the way things are now. And it's so much easier. So she bemoans, my daughter says, you know, he has it so, her brother, her younger brother has it so much easier. And he's never had to wait and he's never been disappointed. And he's, you know, he's never the last one being picked up. Life is just so different. And I think that's, if that's the spirit of it is how do we get to do all of this, you know, and still be loving, present parents contributing in our workplace, doing the best that we can. What are more ideas around that, around creative work working that we could embrace that would allow for better mental health and physical health, you know? You know, during the pandemic, one good thing to me was that I didn't have to drive everywhere all the time. <laughs> and if I did, there was no traffic. Right, right. And I remember even just before that, my second son, who's 18 now, in third grade told me, Dad, you're like Uber. And I got <laughs> offended. I was like, what? That's all you do. He goes, yeah, I just I just call you and you show up. I was like, oh my God, you're so right. It's true. And yeah, that I mean, that's a hard thing. Especially you add in the caring for parents. Caregiver yeah. for parents Care or for someone else. You know what I mean? I or have, spouse. We have a small staff. Practically every staff member has or is taking care of parents. And we have young staff too. So it's a, it's a thing, you know, right now. So how are they doing that? Like what's going on with them? Because that's the um, age group that I'm in as well, mm -hmm. you know? One person, he, his mom's in Vegas. So sometimes he actually works remotely from Vegas. And, and he's fine. And he's an early morning guy. So he does, he's up taking care of business and then kind of stops working in the late afternoon. Another young woman, her mom has health issues, serious health issues, and she's the only sibling here with her mom. And so it's kind of fallen on her to actually get her mom regular. And she has weekly doctor's appointments with her mom. And I've been able to witness her sort of grow up around these family issues. But we try to accommodate just her coming and going in that regard and doing the best that we can as a team. And these two are very dedicated. They will do whatever it takes to get the job done. They just need these, these extra hours. And then another person who is closer in age to me actually took care of her mother before her mom passed, challenging, you know, and was living with her mom and, and helping to take care. And then I have since lost both parents a while back, but to, helped with my siblings to take care of both parents. So fully understand the stresses of trying to shuttle kids and kupuna to doctors and somebody's fallen, you got to go, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's stressful. And, you know, having a full-time job. Have you seen what helps the most for people like that, like in a supportive nature, whether it's through the office or other, like, how are they supported through that? Because typically the caregiver is not, you know what I mean? That, that is, I'd say that's the hardest junkest job there actually is i would rather dig a ditch in concrete with a spoon you know what i mean like it's so hard yeah it's you know it's funny because i always say to people i belong to a club that you only belong to when you've lost your parents and when i ask people if they want to join the club to actually have conversations 
when you lose parents and when you've been a caregiver, you get anointed whether you want to or not to a club, like an like unsaid club of people who have been through the ringer as caregivers. And when you are a caregiver and you want to talk to someone else who's not a caregiver, they don't want to talk about it because it's too morbid, it's too stressful, and it's not their experience. So you only really want to talk to other caregivers, right? But there aren't enough groups that are facilitating caregivers coming together to support each other. If you ask me, there aren't enough geriatric services in general for family members or, you know, for their loved ones or for caregivers. So if I had not a full-time job and young kids or whatever, I would have probably taken it upon myself to either write a book or like introduce legislation, join, you know, AARP or whatever, like in their advocacy efforts to kind of scream from the top of the mountain that there aren't enough resources around this. There aren't enough mental health geriatricians, right? Geriatricians specializing in mental health issues, psychiatrists, psychologists. There aren't enough people looking at medication management for Kupuna. There's just a lot. So yeah, we are completely lacking, I think, in the state of Hawaii around caregiver resources, you know, and services. As I'm listening to you talk in length about kind of your role in the organization and so on, how are you not holding on to all of that like responsibility and baggage that comes with a lot of it, right? Because like these of, missions that yeah, and I mean a lot of the work that's being done in the community space is heavy, mm-hmm. meaning like emotionally, right. physically heavy, right? You know how do you not hold that? I do. <laughs> oh. I mean, it's for one thing. I think the role of Hano is to not solve for those problems, but to actually garner resources, ideas, knowledge to actually uplift others who are doing that really good work. So it's an arm's length approach, right? Which I always recognized from the beginning in nonprofit work that I can't be that social worker. I can't be sitting at a park bench next to a homeless person trying to engage that person to stop taking drugs or whatever, right? I cannot, I'm not going to be that person who does that. And when I meet those people, I just think they're amazing yeah, <laughs> for the work that they do. if you're not on the front line, yeah. you know, delivering service, yeah. you still are seeing vicariously yes, there. Yes, yes. But so. I will say that my arm's length, the distance is helpful to me. I feel like, okay, this is how I'm contributing is like even during the pandemic to get, and we worked together in the pandemic in the early years when we were putting on those workshops, like every week we were just trying to get information out around PPP loans and all of that. So you remember, Evan, that that there's a good feeling there. It's like, okay, I'm not going to be providing bentos on, you know, in the food service line, and I'm not going to be the COVID tester, but I'm actually getting information to nonprofits to allow them to do their best work. And that felt good. You know, I'm sure it felt good for you to be able to help in that way, you know? And And that's just... Everybody plays a different role. Like I was feeling a little guilty that I wasn't on the front lines during that time period. And people said, nope, you stay where you are. You stay where you're at. You keep doing what you're doing. We need you to curate that information because it's coming like a fire hose. And we can't, we're so busy with our head down in community. We need you to distill that. We need you to grab it. We need you to curate it. We need you to interpret it. And we need you to put it out to us in bite-sized pieces so we can consume it and do it. (laughs) And just keep doing you. And I was like, okay, well, 
there's value to that. And I think the community did see that intermediary role that Hano played in the pandemic. And it became crystal clear why we need intermediaries to do exactly what I just said, right? So to answer your question, that had to be enough for me for the role where I sit. Now, as to the bigger question of all of these community social issues, I mean, we're solving it slowly, but surely, you know, we can't sort of solve for everything at once. We have to sort of take this smallify approach, right? Where we're biting little pieces off, taking the low-hanging fruit and slowly solving for that. But yes, it can be overwhelming not to be in a position to figure all that out, you know? And I think a lot of people feel that, you know, especially when they're doing meaningful work. When you think about you say the area of domestic violence and you help save one woman and then you lose another. I mean, that's just got to be demoralizing, right? For that mission work. Have we gotten better at mitigating domestic violence? I don't, I don't know, you know? So how do people just keep on keeping on with those statistics? Yeah. In that kind of frame too, I was wondering, because I know Nancy Creedman who does the domestic, yeah. but she's, and that's after like 30 something yeah. years. And that work is heavy. I that's mean, going to be an interesting one. There's a lot of retirements going on in the nonprofit sector of, so it's interesting because when I first started, there was a generation of like veterans that had been many, many CEOs or executive directors of larger social service agencies, particularly that had been doing this work for like 30 years, like Nancy, you know, and are retiring. And they're kind of like that baby boomer generation, right? And and even then, as we saw those retirements, I thought, wow, there's a lot of mana'o just sort of leaving the sector, a lot of historical knowledge just leaving the sector. And it was funny because I didn't realize that I'm of that next sort of generation of community executive directors that will leave. And with a certain you know, decades of years behind me, under me, that I take also as I leave the sector. And that's worrisome too. Someone, I went to a national organization, my national conference, and they did this little funny thing. They said, you know, there's a lot of newbies here at the conference. These are state associations of nonprofits from across the country. So the different, we call them ANOs, right? Associations of nonprofits. And we sat there at the conference and they said, okay, everyone stand up. And if you've been to this, if this is your first time at the conference, sit down, right? If this is your fifth time at this conference, annual conference, sit down. If this is your 15th or whatever, you know. So I was remaining. I was like one of few standing up and only at 15 years, meaning it's a young sector of leaders who it's no longer the 30-year veterans. It's like we're at this point where... Even the longest standing executive is still fairly relatively young. And, you know, it, I haven't made it a secret. I'm planning to leave Hano at the end of the year, of the end of 2023, after 15 years. So I'm really thinking about this, my legacy and sort of what stays, what kind of knowledge can stay in the sector. What are we doing to actually mine that knowledge, hold that knowledge, facilitate the transfer of that knowledge? I don't think we're doing that enough. And not just particular to the nonprofit sector. I think as we see baby boomers retiring across all industries, what is happening to actually facilitate that that knowledge transfer? 
And I don't see a lot of formal mentoring programs that are specifically targeted to that. I see mentoring programs, but I don't see it with that intentionality. And that worries me. Maybe it's happening in informal ways, but I really don't see it happening in systemic, institutionalized ways. You know? Yeah, I don't see it too much either. And, you know, some might say, well, this has happened since the beginning of time. An older generation leaves and the younger generation comes up. It's not particular to our time, right? So what have we done in the past to actually hold that knowledge? Don't know, right? So as you're leaving, did you want to talk about that? What do you want to share? So I've been thinking about it for a while. And I think every leader should do this, is ask themselves if they remain relevant in their job. And I have always been very mission-focused. So, yeah, I realized that when I went to the for-profit sector and I really missed charitable work, mission-based work. And so I kind of left and went back to the sector. So I kind of know what makes me tick. I love the organization enough that if I applied today for this job, I don't think I would get it. (laughs) A lot has changed as I age around my attitudes, around power. I think about the power dynamics that exist in Hawaii and some of the traditional facets of power feel lost, wayward. What do you mean? Personally, this isn't the reflection of Hano, but, you know, we're developing so much luxury housing and there's not a lot of affordable housing for our residents. And what, where have we lost our way there, you know, and how do we make Hawaii affordable for people to stay? You know, you're doing your work in brain gain and all of those types of things. So what should we be doing to actually make sure our young people can stay? And not just young people, we're seeing droves of people leaving mid, mid-level managers, retirees going to more cost-effective states like Vegas, right? I mean, Nevada, etc. Almost anywhere. Right? Yeah, right? So how do we stem that out migration? And anyway, those are just some of the things that I think about around power and decision-making and public policy, you know, the types of policies that are being created and, you know, worrying about climate change, those types of things, right? All kind of feed into my attitude around the work that I need to do on behalf of Hano and the nonprofit sector is sort of the industry lobbyist, you know, like showing up at the legislature every day with a smile on my face and not necessarily agreeing with the way things are going, you know? So am I the right person at this moment in time to kind of navigate that as the representative of the nonprofit sector, I don't think I'm the right person at the moment. That person needs to be super eager to build Pilina, to show up there and create a robust, you know, policy agenda for the sector. And I'm tired. To build tired. what? Pilina? Like, Pilina. To oh, build Pilina. relationship, oh. right? Mm-hmm. Like to actually show up there and... Mm-hmm build authentic relationships between the nonprofit sector and to, f- to kind of facilitate that. Well, you lasted way longer, more than double. I think the average you know, head of a nonprofit is like five, six years or something like that. Yeah, I mean, again, I think the work, depending on where you sit in the sector, the work is hard, yeah. you know? And so I will tell you that I could stay at Hano for the rest of my career. 
I enjoy it. Like there's no shortage of things to do. And I am interested still in a lot of the projects that I'm doing. It's just that I don't know that I am the right representative at this moment in time, particularly in the policy arena. I think we just need some new ideas. And then Hano is actually growing programmatically. We've really turned the corner financially and we're doing really well, but the back office hasn't really caught up with the programmatic side. And I think right now it needs an operations manager. Like it needs somebody who's going to create systems to scale up. And that's like a lot of operational detail that I'm not super interested in doing myself. When I was a younger manager, I had the ability to kind of do the the minutia, like the detailed administrative work, and then also kind of keep an eye to the big picture, the strategy. And then as I aged, the strategy piece got bigger and demanded more of my time. And I got less attentive to dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And lately, as I age, I'm just wanting to sit in the strategy place. And I have a small staff. And so our younger staff still need me to be in the weeds with them. They still want me to think about what database should we get to scale up? You know, and I'm just like, that's the death of me at the moment. I'd like to be sitting on the hill thinking strategy, but we can't, my small staff can't afford for me to be just sitting on the hill thinking strategy. And so for that reason, I don't think I'm the right person right now for what Hano needs. And sometimes board staff, they hang on so tightly to organizations no term limits. Everyone just sits with the same ideas. I really think organizations need fluidity. They need change in order to thrive. And sometimes change might not be good for the organization, but it, it, it allows that organization to weather, to weather those times and to get more resilient. And uh, so I just think that's really good. And then I had a recent health scare. I'm totally fine. But I think the health scare kind of precipitated me kind of asking myself whether I have 20 years or one year of contribution to community in good work. Have I done everything I want to do? No. Have I learned everything I want to learn? No, not at all. And while I still could potentially learn a lot of things at Hano, I think it'll be really hard to actually carve out those opportunities for myself within that container. And there are things that I want to say, you know, that are a little bit more critical maybe of the way things are happening in Hawaii that wouldn't be fair for me to do at Hano. It's just not the mission of Hano, you know? And it's like, at the end of the day, our mission is to make sure that everyone else is strong. Whether it's like putting out Marketing 101 for nonprofits and those types of traditional services that we're obligated to our constituency to do, is that where I'm at right now? Probably not. I'm moving a little bit away from that. And we have a really good board, good staff. They're in sync. We completed a strategic plan. Everybody's in lockstep. I think it's a great time to let someone come in and actually play with that, you know? much better than if I walked away and everything was in a shambles. I would feel horrible about that, right? And I probably wouldn't leave, actually, if it was things were in a shamble. But one of the things that I reflected on is when I used to be the executive director of the Pacific and Asian Affairs Council, and I was there nine years, and I love that mission. And I hit a plateau at nine years. I was like, okay, I think I'm fresh out of ideas. I'm out of energy. It's time to go. So at the time, you know, People were like, stay close. I was like, 
I love this mission. I think I could be a menace if I stayed too close. I don't want to be lurking. I don't want to be weighing in and, you know, micromanaging. I think I'm going to go far away. So I went to the PR firm. And now fast forward, my son, who's an incoming junior, he is a beneficiary of one of the Pacific and Asian Affairs Council's global leadership programs, a program that was invented and created after I left. And did I have any notion of that? No. That was created because in some ways I was able to leave and yield to new ideas, new leadership. And now my son and I, you know, as his parent, I'm a beneficiary of this wonderful program. It's allowed him to travel to South Korea. He's really immersed in global education, global issues. He's met new friends across the state. Anyway, it's something that was created in some ways because new leadership was able to put their hands on it. Similarly for Hano, I know there's good stuff coming and I'm excited to see it. And, and I think there's just stuff I want to do, mm -hmm. you know? Did you want to talk about the other stuff or that you had mentioned earlier or not really? You know, I did an exit letter and I was unprepared for the feedback or just the response I would get. And, you know, people came out of the woodwork to just go, oh, you know, we read your letter. And it was pretty much what I just said. I kind of spelled out that for personal and professional reasons, you know, it's time to go. People wanted to know that, was I retiring? Was I leaving the state? Did I take another job? <laughs> Had I, you know, it's that proverbial, did you meet another guy kind of thing? Are you leaving us? And it just wasn't enough to to be nuanced that I feel like I'm, I'm not the right person at the right time right now. Like, why isn't that acceptable in this community for people to ask themselves that and then to remove themselves because they care so much for the organization? Like it just was inconceivable to people. So I thought that was interesting. Transparently, when I saw that that email, I was wondering the same thing. Like, what's going on around here? I said, oh, no need then because yeah. if you got some stuff going on, because I mean, the letter looked PR-ish, you know? So... My husband and I split up. I don't think I might. I don't think he minds me sharing that. And it just isn't enough that we wanted to do it, <laughs> that it was mutual, that we're doing this in friendship and love. You know, it had to be that somebody was a villain, somebody was a victim, somebody's been cheated on, right? Like, it's like, no, none of that. It's just we have mutually decided to part and it's very nuanced and it's very gray. But people have a really hard time wrapping their head around the gray. And I think that applies to so much in life. It applies to the gray of why I'm leaving Hano. And it's just not acceptable enough to people that I'm leaving Hano for the reasons I said. Like there's had to have something, something had to have gone down. I had to have had a fight with the board. No, nothing, <laughs> nothing dramatic like that. It's just where we are, I think, in society is we can't be comfortable with the gray. You know, what's that about? I guess we'll call it, I don't know, middle age or so on. Mm -hmm. And you're making what seems to be kind of a major change in a lot of ways, right? Mm -hmm. Like with your ex mm -hmm. and then your career and life and so on. And then how is that scary for you or? It is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a lot of change, you know. It's been a lot of change in the last year, particularly. So what's kind of gone in like in your internal system? Because I know you probably... you're thinking a lot of things, but what like goes on like in your heart and in your gut as you're contemplating this, do we have yeah. the energy? Can I handle this? Right. Mm -hmm. So what's I, going on like inside of you that 
that is potentially going on in, inside a lot of others? Well, I think it's, you know, it's it's not a midlife crisis. It's a midlife assessment, right? It's at this juncture. And for me, I would say it's a not a midlife. It's a two-third life, right? <laughs> like it's the, there's yeah. a last leg to this, right? Yeah. It's a It's a one-third leg. And mostly defined. Hopefully we get one third. Yeah. At this point, right. I don't know, you know. And by one third, I think I'm timing that out as like a career one third, right? So what in is time this, though, right? In time, right? Yeah. But Maybe. personally, it could be longer, right? It or shorter, not sure. But when I say one third life, I'm really thinking career wise. Like what is that last expression, right? Um, or several expressions. And how much energy and, you know, like brain power and all that. Yeah. And it's parallel, right? So the personal and the professional are very mirrored in the decision making. So the professional, like I, at the moment, the plan is I'll consult. I frankly just need a break. Like to what we were just saying earlier is I don't think my organization could have afforded a sabbatical for me, but could a sabbatical have made me stay? I don't know. But I just need a break. I just need to hear myself think. I need to. Yeah. Just relax, you know? So would that be considered self-care? Yes. In okay. that regard, it's it's wellness or it's self-care. I still will have to work. Like, I still have to make a living. And so don't get me wrong. I'm not, like, you know, taking a complete break. The consulting work will be challenging, I'm sure. So at the moment, that's the plan on the professional side. On the personal side, you know, to answer your question, it's a lot of anxiety around financial independence around what does it mean to be whole <laughs> i'm learning a lot of things as a result of being alone you know i'm learning how to cook <laughs> my ex did all the cooking and you know i'm learning to have to maintain a large house an old old large house <laughs> it's been fascinating and rewarding to learn things for the first time ever so while a little scary, super empowering to be able to navigate that. And I'm determined to experience what it means to be completely whole by myself. And then when did you make that decision? And what precipitated that decision? Because to me, when I'm listening to this, it's like there were certain boundaries that were there that maybe you were holding or not holding. And then now there's specific boundaries that you've been able to put into place. So something changed. I say that I overtly re respelled the boundaries, right? It sort of happened to me. Yeah. I mean, it's a product of my ex and I deciding we didn't want to be together, right? And those were a different set of boundaries that we both okay. kind of, right? Like we yeah. had decided that, and by the way, no regrets. Like we loved our life together. Right. We have no regrets and we have two beautiful children. So the decisions that were made in the first half of life together are being honored. But for reasons that are complex and gray, we decided that we are done sort of with that life checklist with each other, you know, that traditional checklist of the kids and the house and the careers and supporting each other. And yeah, it's all been checked off. So as we diverge, what are the new checklists that we each have and how do we, to the best of our ability, support each other in that, in checking off our own checklists separate, but also holding space for our family, right? Because our kids come first. 
So managing, those are the boundaries. That's so there the wasn't boundary. something that happened or didn't happen that said, okay, no, now I'm going to make these changes in my life, not just a relationship, but your work, your perspective. It was like I woke up one day and was like, okay, I'm changing this way, you know? I think for this may resonate with listeners of a certain age is empty nesting will do that to you. My younger son is fairly old. He doesn't need the kind of care that he needed earlier, right? So as they age and my older daughter's out of the house already, it yields to a lot of thinking, right? As a couple, you kind of turn to each other too and go, oh, is this what we want, right? Is it during the pandemic too? Or did Actually, the pandemic do something? Think, a lot what? of people, and I've heard from other friends who are going through similar issues that the pandemic sealed the deal, right? Like nailed the, the nail in the coffin. And no, actually, this was bubbling well before the pandemic. And actually, in the pandemic, it was completely stressful because he's an educator. So he, gosh, 2020, 2021 were hell for him. Yeah. But because we were both, so mired in our respective work related to the pandemic, we actually came together. And when, certainly when we sheltered as a family, my daughter had to come home from college and all of that. It was wonderful. <laughs> like We enjoyed that quality time with each other. And because our working community was so equally intense, it was matched. Like we weren't, one wasn't ignoring the other. We were both just exhausted and, you know, would have a cocktail at the end of the day, you know, I remember every day in 2020, you were just like worked right at the end of the day and then would share out what each of our nightmares were right that day. And so it was compatible actually in the pandemic. I just think that a lot of things came to head over the last say five years that just were undeniable around kind of where we each want to head and what we each want to do, who we each are or were before we met each other, right? And when you kind of complete that chapter and you kind of look back and you think, am I the person? I mean, it is the midlife. You're asking if I died tomorrow, right? Have I done everything I want to do? Am I the person I want to be, right? Or is there something to discover about myself that is undiscovered? And I think we both kind of started to ask those questions of each other and of ourselves. It's kind of paved the way to go separately. So it's almost like etch a sketch, you know, <laughs> etch a sketch thing, right? So like yeah. the first like however many years, yeah, etch a, yeah. and then it's like, nah, psh, right. psh, and you shake that thing up and it's now it's clear. So you have a kind of a clear slate. And when I think about that, some people would say, oh, I'm going to reinvent myself. And then others might say, you know what? I'm just trying to embody what I was born here to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm trying to find my authentic self, right? And what I'm meant to be and do. And I know this sounds airy-fairy. It sounds a little, you know, like people are like, so you're just leaving Hano. Like, what's the plan? You know, and my dad, had my dad been alive, he (laughs) he might have said, don't jump off a cliff until you have the safety net down there, right? Like, don't do that. But my dad was in his own way a risk taker. And he had always wanted us to have like a financial safety net. And so after passing, you know, we each were fortunate to have some inheritance, right? And so the way I see my nest egg of sorts is it's a chance for me to jump off cliffs without the safety net and see what kind of catches me or see what sort of happens. And I'm never before been more certain about that for some reason. And I can't tell you why. Well, you know, 
the piece when you say risk, right? You said you had the health scare, and then you're in the middle of the what has to support social services in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see everything right up front. So it becomes what's more risky, right? What's more risky? Staying in, continuing doing the same thing and over and over, where I could potentially just get dropped dead, you know, mm-hmm. tomorrow, or is it to really take that step out, kind of wipe the slate clean, and go forward and see what am I really here to be doing? When you look back at it, which one is more of a regret, right? Almost to an extent. I wouldn't say that every choice that I've made career-wise, I've been in alignment Mm -hmm. at that moment in time, you know? So there was nothing that I would look back on that I felt maybe, maybe save a couple decisions, but even those decisions where I felt misaligned were so valuable in the lessons, right? And sometimes you need to be misaligned to actually see what matters to you, right? What you're made of. So everything happens for a reason. I have no regrets when I look back. And everything had silver linings when I look back. And I'll say that to young people who ask, oh, you know, why did you make this decision? Why did you take this zigzag of a career? And what is just feeling right now is misalignment, slight misalignment. The container is slightly ill-fitting at the moment. And so I'm doing what it takes to get myself out of an ill-fitting container to find alignment again, right? But all the learnings are so rich in even that experience. And so no regrets there too. And what I think is being affirmed back to me is as I try to find that right fit, everything will kind of fall into place. And it always has. (laughs) When you say that everything falls into place when it's the right decision, was the direction of that decision determined by your head, your heart, or your gut? Gut. What is needed for your gut to be fully certain? Like for your alignment, as you talk about with whatever is to come, to be fully aligned. Space, quiet, regulation, right? Like just being self-regulated, present. I think there's some a feeling of safety. And by safety, I mean like I'm not being chased by a bear or anything kind of thing. Like just... Finance, there's got to be some relative. I'm fortunate to have a home. I'm fortunate to have loved ones, a social network, right? There's a relative. People have my back, right? I have a close family, siblings, right? So there's a social network in place that makes me feel safe. I don't know that everyone has that luxury, right? To be able to listen to their na'au or whatever, right? And act on that. That progression actually makes sense because you said you need space space that allows you to be Mm self-regulated that will Mm -hmm. then allow you to feel safe. That's actually the progression. But the safety comes at the front end too, to even begin this work, right? Like if I didn't feel safe, if I didn't feel, I'm not sure that I would make bold decisions, right? I mean, safety is a elusive term because you can be in a safe space and not feel safe. True. But the way I define it, right? The way I'm defining it of loved ones, right? Having loved ones, having even just professional colleagues, right? That affirm who I am, right? And the ability, that's that's all encompassing. Well, I'm just doing yeah. and living. <laughs> that's kind it. of a key statement though, when you say I'm just being, because, you know, most of the time we're doing. Well, and I'm an uber planner. Yeah. Like that defines my career, really. If you were to ask what were some of the successful facets of my career, it's that I probably tried to stay two steps ahead, right? Mm-hmm. All the time. And and that's resulted in 
just being prepared, right? That defines part of my identity. So part of this, that's a little unnerving. And this is back to your question of like, how are you feeling about all of this, right? Is it's completely unnerving that I don't have a plan. Completely. And how does that feel? Kind of stressful. My friends tease me that I like to strategic plan everything, you know? So like get out the chart paper and kind of like figure out the five-year kind of plan. And I'm not able to do any of that at the moment. So, I mean, I think on the personal side, I can. I can see kind of the steps I want to take to be independent or to, on the personal side, to be a great parent, but to also have the work life, you know, a life balance, to have a social life, et cetera, right? So on the personal side, I can see how to be planful in that way. On the professional side, is that, that's probably where it's just a big kind of, at the moment, it's very opaque to me what the yeah, future so holds. So then there would be no sense to plan. Because yeah. when you're planning, and what I'm listening to it is you're basically determining your steps to get to something, but right now you're still determining what that something is. Yeah. It's also about understanding what my contributions and gifts can be yeah. and refining that. So it's so over the tenure of my career, right? So I don't know how long it's been that I've been working, but 30 plus years probably, it's become clear to me, I guess, what my strengths are professionally, right? My skill sets. So it's about taking that raw information and then figuring out what is the next iteration or expression of that and what is it that I need to still learn and add that to my toolkit and then what is it that I'm doing? in order to utilize that and contribute. And at the end of the day, what I'm made of is I want to contribute to a better Hawaii, right? I'm invested in this place and I see certain injustices, right? And I just, I want to help write that or support healing, wellness, whatever. And by healing, I mean societal healing. I don't mean like healing Evan Leong. I just mean like, what can we do as a society to actually be better and well? You would figure you would take Evan Leong and multiply that out and that becomes your society, right? Not this society of me, but You mean like working one person at a time? I mean, it's kind of how it goes, yeah. isn't it? Right. Yeah. We're doing an individual right. process, but within a right. group. Right. But just unclear as to what that expression is or that intervention or that, you know what I mean? Like just unclear what that looks like at the moment. I'm at this place where I don't want to be in environments where I am not values aligned with the people that I work with. It's just too much effort, <laughs> you know, yeah. where it's not a harmonious environment. Like, it's just life's too short. I don't want to swim upstream. I don't want to be the sole person trying to change something from within. Like, it's just that work seems too hard. Like, I've kind of come to the conclusion that I want to be around like-minded people where it's effortless to build together, you know, and create together. Yeah. You know what that reminds me of is that stage that the caterpillar moves into a chrysalis. Because when the caterpillar moves into the chrysalis, it like dissolves into mm. like gunk and then it, it reforms. Mm. And that's like painful process the entire way through mm. until what it does is it eats its way out of that. And then that's the part that is like really, really vulnerable because as it starts to spread its wings initially, it has to dry a little bit. Mm. So it has to sit there and it can't fly yet mm. until it can fly. 
right? So that's the point where it's like, you know, predators can easily come yeah. in and right. get it, especially because it has the bright wings. And that's beautiful, actually, you know, a chrysalis. Because it is, it feels like a very yeah. vulnerable stage, like something might fly down and it's bite my head off. It's completely dissolved. When it goes into that, it almost dissolves. Mm -hmm. And then it has to re and completely rebuild reform. itself in a different way. Yeah, it completely reforms as something else. And with different strengths, right? Different abilities. So that's why it's kind of mm -hmm. interesting, right? What are the wings mm -hmm. that are there mm -hmm. that didn't show themselves yet that maybe you didn't put onto your... Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. So that's exactly the state that I'm in. Yeah. And that's an interesting one because I think a lot of people are actually in that state right now. I don't know if it's just our age, right? It's our life stage. I'm 53. That and what we went through. Yeah. It's just like, it feels very cliche. Like there have been thousands, millions of people who have gone before me who have felt these feelings, done, made these decisions, right? Doesn't um, make it easier though, does it? No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, it's just an interesting to kind of go like, what goes through and what will that next stage be when we're like in our 60s, right? Like just what's that going to feel 60s. like? What's that going to feel like? Well, that feels very... Right? I mean, you never know. Last year I had, I thought I had eight friends die, mm. but turns out I had nine because mm. one committed suicide <gasps> that I so didn't sorry. know about. Book chunk of them are my age. Yeah. Right? So that That's along with sad. my father passing like mm. this year is like shows me very clearly mm -hmm. that I cannot predict anything mm -hmm. in terms mm -hmm. of my lifespan. Right? Totally. So it might yep. sound a little I mean, bit I've had macabre, similar but, I've I mean, had similar experiences with classmates, you know, and so young, right? I totally I totally understand where you're coming from. Interesting. It's very unsettling. A lot has happened too, just like I mean you know this, you have four kids, but, you know, I have a daughter going off to grad school. So another life transition for her. You know, I've moved several times in just this giving space kind of <laughs> goal, right, mm -hmm. with my ex. And it's been pretty volatile. Health problems, leaving Hano or the decision to leave Hano, you know. And then, yeah, trying to actually grow out of that, right? Mm -hmm. So the cooking and photography class and belly dancing and, you know, and... Spending time trying to be present, I couldn't afford to regularly see some of my friends because I was married and busy and, you know, head down. And so reestablishing relationships with people in meaningful ways and, yeah, just trying to be present and learn and have fun. I guess that's what I'm trying to say, too, is there's so much to do. You know, I want to travel. <laughs> that's really who I was before I got married is really a traveler. You know, and think that there's a more creative side to me that hasn't been coaxed out yet. So that's the butterfly wings, I think, that I'm trying to figure out, right? What's the modality? What's the hobby? What's the, right? Like, what's the the craft or the skill? And in that way, that's super exciting because I have to remember that those are the things that, you know, when your head's down and you're a busy parent and you are consumed with taking care, just getting from point A to point B every day. I used to sort of fantasize about, oh, I just wish I could live alone, or I just wish I had time to myself, or I wish I could just take off and travel by myself if I wanted to. And I wish I could read a book. I wish I could write a book. I, could, you know, I had a lot of fantasies. And so this is a nice chance to just kind of go, look, you've been given the time and the space to actually do this. So appreciate it. It's exciting. Kind. It's a myriad of feelings. Let's just put it that way, right? Like, yes. Yeah. 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 
It's Nothing scary. Is discreetly. It's exciting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It feels needed. Mm-hmm. It's like, why am I going to do this? Exactly. It makes sense. It doesn't make exactly. sense. Exactly. And that's a tough place to be in these, what is it, dichotomies, right? Like nothing is certain, right? That's like, where growth is. I guess so. I mean, it, yeah. it feels weird because it hasn't happened in a long time. So it's just feeling very like, it's just unsettling. Did you notice this shirt? Yeah, I did. Right? I saw it in the You know moment. where my shirt, you yeah. know where I got this shirt? From Uncle Pono. Yeah. Yeah. And he's one that, you know, passed last year, was close with you. If he was around now and you approached him, what do you think he would tell you? you go girl, you know, I don't know, something like that. And it's interesting because, you know, toward the end, I think he was really concerned about, you know, his passing was happening too prematurely for the work he wanted to still do. And he felt he hadn't expanded his, I don't want to say influence, because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't someone who was like, I must impose this on everyone. He had so much he wanted to do, right? as does anyone who dies young the way he did, right? So he just had regrets. But I think that right now he's smiling because I think what happened is the work that many of us were doing with him around Aloha response, you know, that that approach have, if it had been a nascent kernel of work within us, in his absence, it's just sort of felt like, okay, we each need to sort of ramp it up. And live it, <laughs> not just learn it and explore it and mull over it, like actually like articulate it and live it and pass it on and, you know, be it. And from where he sits might be looking at all of us kind of going, oh, I mean, they're, they've amped it up. <laughs> and could it have happened otherwise if he had lived? Because I think a lot of people would have continued to turn to him for guidance or for answers or for clarity or whatever. And while he wasn't one to always just sort of answer your question or solve your problem, the process that he would go through is just asking questions of you so that your journey was just long (laughs) in that exploration. But now we're having to just sort of ask it of ourselves and kind of figure it out and express it. And so there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't think about him and think about was, am I practicing what I, how I want to practice it, you know, in every iteration of my life. So that's pretty powerful, you know, of a legacy that he left. What story would he end up telling you? I think on the professional front, he would intuit that I'm craving disruption of some sort. I use this analogy a lot is Nonprofits often feel not invited to the table. If the table was a powerful table, right? They don't get invited. And I think, to be honest, that there is a concern by traditional forms of power to actually yield power to community because that's dangerous. And so whether it's overt or not even conscious, there is not a willingness to include community at the table, right? So I have always thought about ways to disrupt that or to help facilitate the invitation of community to the table to the extent that I'm already at the table. If I am, then I will do my best to bring others with me, right? And so Pono, I think the things we used to talk about was about disruption and not like civil disobedience, like those types of things, but just what are quiet ways to 
kind of shift the conversation around the redistribution of power, you know? And so we would probably continue to have those conversations on the professional side. On the personal side, you know, he knows my ex as well. He's very close to him as well. And he was. And I don't think he saw this coming himself. (laughs) And I think thought that our work, mine and my ex, was meant to be together, community work. And really, I don't see that. You know, I see that we have tremendous respect for each other's work, but we're not meant to do work together. And so maybe the conversation with with him on the personal side would just be like exploring that a little bit more, you know. He was always someone to speak in riddles, right? So it was not very easy to understand what he wanted you to see. When you talked about the your clarity for your alignment, right? What would be needed in order to have the connection to that clarity be like 100%? I think it just has to align with my values. No, like what would actually be needed like in your internal system for your connection? Oh, like, if you come out of your head yeah. and you move down like into your heart or gut, what's needed? I think uh, yeah. oftentimes it goes from my gut to my brain. And okay. so then it becomes like when it's clear to me, crystal clear, it has materialized in my brain as a plan. So what is needed to have that connection to your gut what does it feel like you need sometimes it's an inner knowing but sometimes it's an external hint you know or just like i can't explain it like someone like you evan will show up like you know we had that coffee moment where this is lately what more and more governs me is i know that when you like say you call me and say let's have coffee there's a reason why you're being put right in front of me at that moment in time. Like and serendipity. That, yeah. And it's, yeah. you know, Pono, Uncle Pono would say that's ahonui, right? It's waiting for that moment, for that clarity, for that moment. And so it's both sort of looking for signals, affirmations, coincidences, synchronicities, right? Like it's all of that that is an external affirmation of what's going on internally. Okay. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time. I wanted to acknowledge you for all of your dedication to our community. Thank you. Thank you. Just want yeah, to it's appreciate a, you for that. It's a fun transition moment, I think, to be chatting, don't you think? Yeah. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. If you resonate with Greater Good Radio, please join our community at www.greatergoodradio.com where you can get access to exclusive content and offerings. Hope to see you soon.